0: Welcome back to Night School, episode seven, Song of Myself, part four. looks like we'll be talking perhaps parts 11, 12, and 13, um, or whatever we can get through in about 30 minutes, maybe more, if, this is, if we really get going. And before we go any further, uh, welcome, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: It's going really well. I'm really happy to be working right now, the day before my birthday, before another podcast tomorrow, and uh, this has been really fun, and I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing this project and so keep moving forward.
1: Yeah, we are what, at 11 right now? Is it my yes. uh, uh
0: As far as I'm, I'm concerned, yes. <laughs> and I'll uh, okay. I'll share the screen for the viewers. You can always go to Poetry Foundation and type in Song of to Myself too and find it for free. Um, if this doesn't suit your fancy or you're not on YouTube, you're on anchor. YouTube is down right now just to date this, um,
1: which is very interesting.
0: All right, yes, Mr. Chance.
1: All right, all right. So our leisurely stroll through, we're at 11. 28 young men bathed by the shore, 28 young men and all so friendly, 28 years of womanly life and all so lonesome. She owns the fine house by the rise of the bank. She hides handsome and richly dressed, aft the blinds of the window. Which of the young men does she like the best? Ah, the homeliest of them is beautiful to her. What are you off to, lady? For I see you. You splash in the water there, yet stay stock still in your room. Dancing and laughing along the beach came the 29th bather. The rest did not see her, but she saw them and loved them beards of the young men glistened with wet. It ran from their long hair. Little streams passed over their, all over their bodies. An unseen hand also passed over their bodies. It descended tremblingly from their temples and ribs. The young men float on their backs. Their white bellies bulge to the sun. They do not ask who seizes fast to them. They do not know who puffs and declines with pendant and bending arch. They do not think whom they souse with spray.
0: All right, well, uh, <laughs> Walt Whitman is certainly starting to earn his reputation in this part, I would say. Um, uh, well, there's several interesting things I see. There, she, Walt starts with um, anaphora in the very first stanza, 28, 28, 28, and then she, she. Um, and so we, we have these we have this description of these men acting in sort of a nymph-like way with a sort of um, invisible Athena-like or, or, or goddess of joy-like figure, perhaps nature, perhaps re- uh, some figure of relationship between the men, Eros or uh, sort of an Aphrodite sort of thing going on there. Um, but um, the, the most striking part of this part is, is the imagery itself with the men put in the, the role of being viewed in sort of a sensual way, how they look, and how the spray affects them and the parts of their body that are, I mean, an unseen hand also passed over their bodies, deeply sens- sensual, Tr- descending tremblingly from their temples and ribs. These, these are places of affectionate touch. And then it's da- young men float on their backs. And we know from Saigadam and Ogiogos, actually, that uh, youth is the number one sexual indicator for both males and females. So that is, a, that is actually a very distinct mention right there and their white bellies again something exposed and um they do not know who puffs and we end as we began with anaphora they they do n- not know who puffs and declines with pendant and bending arch and again that, that language that bending arch language just evokes you know the the lumbar spine and motions in a sensual way they do not think whom they south souse with spray. And I'm, I'm not sure actually what to do with the, the end of that there, Wes, or what you think of what I've had to say, but I, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's, again, referring to her, the, the watcher's presence um, among them, and so in a sense, she's, our, she's, she's there um, among them in the, in the, the pool or the, the river, um, And so the spray of their, uh, splashing around, you know, is also wetting her, um, who, you know, she's watching so intently that she's the 29th bather. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting. Just the, um you know, little streams passed all over their bodies just to add to that sensual imagery of, like, which evokes sort of the image of a figure in a shower or something like that. Um, and that, that, the image of, say, like, the water imagery and the sort of shallow or little or glistening water imagery is very much evocative of Aphrodite and the mythology surrounding her being sort of the cast-off male parts of Uranus that fell into the, the ocean. And then from the off air, the uh, foam came forth Aphrodite, indicating that her love is sort of sweet and shallow and superficial and sensual. Um, and, and, and that it's skin deep. And even though I do see the sensuality in this, in this, um, this piece, I'm, I, I'm not sure whether I see the transcendent yet.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting little parallel there between the myth and the everyday scene. Mm. And I mean, I think also there's a, there's a pretty strong note of pathos where this young woman, 28 years, maybe not so young at that time, uh, is, is watching from behind the blinds, right? She... Um, can't physically be out there with them as much as she might like to and uh, she's lonesome up there but that is also an example of the the kind of love that Whitman is evoking Um, and her presence watching of course is sort of like our presence watching and listening um, and like the poets right he says um, the eye of the poem at least where are you off to lady for I see you right and he's sort of he's bringing her out there in, imaginatively and so he's making the connection uh which again we're sort of also invited to partake in um and as much as it's sensual it's also sort of innocent in that way right it's uh it's 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 bringing to fulfillment this unfulfilled desire um and it's sort of like you know makes her day
0: when I certainly see the romanticism in that aspect in this in this piece the um sort of upholding of of uh that which is evocative of pathos or that which produces emotion uh, or the expression of that which is real experience filled with emotion um, is is certainly here and that that does make me think that. It is sort of poor practice to criticize poetry, seeing that it is, it is the artistic expression of someone's experience. And so much better just to understand what it is, much more valuable practice than attempting to criticize without, you know, without first establishing what it is that the other person was attempting to articulate to you. So, yeah. Hmm. So, shall we move on to 12? Go for it. All right. The butcher boy puts off his killing clothes and sharpens his knife at the stall in the market. I loiter, enjoying his repartee and his shuffle and breakdown. Blacksmiths with grimed and hairy chests environ the anvil. Each has his man- main sledge. They are all out. There is a great heat in the fire. From the cinder strewed threshold, I follow their movements. The live shear of their waists plays even with their massive arms, overhand. The hammers swing, overhand so slow, overhand so sure. They do not hasten. Each man hits in his place.
1: Cool. So we jump back from the countryside or uh, wherever we were out there in wilderness nature back to the city. Um, The butcher boy uh, might make us think about that uh, imagery of of childhood and, and birth even, right? um, his killing clothes. Uh, this is sort of like our, I guess, stand in for this scene. Right. Um, and the poet is there enjoying a talk with him while sort of, again, watching only this time. It seems like instead of watching a, uh, a, a scene of leisure, we're watching a scene of, of hard work. Um, but there's a kind of a music to it, right? The, um, the beating of the hammers uh, is is so um, rhythmic in the in the way that it's put to, put together in that line um, and the kind of orderliness to it um, for all that there's this uh, uh quality of i don't know effort and straining um, everything seems to kind of work together, the lithe, sheer, um, massive arms, right? And eat, uh, the final line there, each man hits in his place. Um, so I think there's there's a kind of parallel between these two parts, right? 11 out in the water, 12 by the fire, 11 out in the woods, 12 in the city. Um, they They also, you know, they're masculine scenes, right? Watched by somebody who, in this case, not a female, but just a younger boy, um, and the poet.
0: Yeah, and I, I would add to that parallel that just as Aphrodite and Hephaestus were for some time married as a story within the story in the Odyssey, so do you have here the Aphrodite imagery and the water imagery above and the Hephaestian imagery and the fire imagery below. The blacksmith god, of course. Uh, who, who is not, not known, however, for his physical beauty. And so that, that I think, is a clear distinction that uh, Walt, Walt Whitman is throwing in there for those who've studied Epic, that he is making a conscious change here. Hephaestus is known to be the ugliest god. In fact, it's because of his limp in Book One of the Iliad that he is laughed at by the other gods. And he's cheated on by Aphrodite with Ares in the Odyssey, because Ares is better looking than he is, and so to describe the lithe shear of these waists as if they are like sort of you know predatory cats and all their lives <laughs> with their massive arms, um, and their hairy chests is, on the one hand, descriptive language, of course, but on the uh, w- within the context of the last two parts, I would say again, fairly suggestive. Um, th- this is a very much a loving eye, an eye that cares for the details. In um, in an appreciative way, um, and I would say, just from what it notices and what it brings about in its language and through its language.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and in this case, yeah, it's a kind of pleasure in the the quality of their their craftsman like work, you know. In the other one, it was a pleasure in the in this the soft uh, serenity of their lazing about which he also is is big on so yeah he, he sort of finds things to delight in everywhere um to delight in on multiple levels like from you know the mythological perhaps and the sensual uh even romantic perhaps um and then just like in the sound of things you know the the, sen- the sensory rather than sensual maybe to make that distinction
0: well and if you um if you take what he is doing to be um, a metaphor for what is happening in this part, overhand the hammer swing, overhand so slow, overhand so sure they do not hasten each man hits in his place. That each that he is a poet, like other poets, like these, like a hammer amongst hammerers, who though they each do the same job of hammering, they and this is po this speaks to the poetic mode. They do not hasten, as in they go at their own pace because language takes time and language has a rhythm, especially this poem, poetry have a rhythm. And each man hits in his place, meaning that even though they have the same job, they're unique too and individuated in some respect, just like Whitman might be, say, claiming about himself as a craftsman, a master craftsman of language, alongside those who came before, um, sort of making his place and making his argument place um though you know pretty speculative at this point
1: i think that's that seems fair um the i mean if you if you think of it in terms of hephaestus then that that activity of making Mm -hmm. has long been associated with the poet and um well i agree that the the emphasis here seems to be on the pace more more than maybe even the sound of what's going on is sort of the rhythmic motion of the work uh, and how sort of uh, perfect it is.
0: Yeah. And just to add to your point about fire and making and poetry as art, as an abstract form of making by means of fire. Uh, In one of your earlier podcasts I was listening to today, you talked about the Promethean fire or the Luciferian uh, morning star-like fire, the the rational consciousness that man has from God. or whatever one wants to call it, that which the prefrontal cortex allows. But um, just something interesting about that is that in Dante's Inferno, Canto 26 is the canto of fire um, in the Inferno, where the deceitful counselors are, including Ulysses, who is the maker-up of fables. And he's paralleled by um, Arno Daniel, who actually gets to speak in his native language of Provençal, which is a high honor for a poet to write a poet in his own language when he's beginning another. And then of course, the, the ultimate maker of language is in Canto Twenty Six of the Paradiso, um, near the source or fire, uh, that's Adam. And so fire and language and poetry, you're, you're quite right that it, it is <laughs> It has a rich mythological and epic tradition behind it. And it's funny that we can get all of that out of this, this these three little stanzas.
1: Right on, it's fun. Speaking right. of
0: language, we have some language coming up here. And I, I would say that, uh, and I wonder if you agree with this, that it's important to read the poetry for what it means and not to invoke modern um, pretensions about language onto it and to make claims about it that are patently untrue as if it were written in the time with the same mores or or the same language conventions as are currently upheld. I I feel like that's like judging somebody's style from this time of clothing and being like, look how ridiculous they look right now. It's like, well, obviously we're very different now. We speak very differently. It's like,
1: that's the difference. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I guess, It's like learning any language, right? That this is the language of the time. And well, we're going to read it and we're going to talk about it. So here goes. Thirteen. The Negro holds firmly the reins of his four horses. The block swags underneath on its tied over chain. The Negro that drives the long dray of the stone yard. Steady and tall he stands, poised on one leg on the string piece. His blue shirt exposes his... Ample neck and breast and loosens over his hip band. His glance is calm and commanding. He tosses the slouch of his hat away from his forehead. The sun falls on his crispy hair and mustache, falls on the black of his polished and perfect limbs. I behold the p- picturesque giant and love him, and I do not stop there. I go with the team also. In me, the caresser of life, wherever moving, backward as well as forward slewing to Nietzsche's side and junior bending, not a person or object missing, absorbing all to myself and for this song. Oxen that rattle the yoke and chain or halt in the leafy shade, what is it that you express in your eyes? It seems to me more than all the print I have read in my life. My tread scares the wood drake and the wood duck on my distant and day-long ramble. They rise together, they slowly circle around, I believe in those winged purposes and acknowledge red, yellow, white playing within me and consider green and violet and the tufted crown intentional and do not call the tortoise unworthy because she is not something else. And the jay in the woods never studied the gamut yet trills pretty well to me. And the look of the bay mare shames silliness out of me. Now that's interesting that he should end with saying shames
0: silliness out of me because this does seem to be a fairly silly part. And that he starts off with again, I would say this fairly central description of a large man who has who has a commanding look and ample neck, um, and breast, like he's describing a woman, and describes his hip band and his polished and perfect limbs, and he is a picturesque giant and I love him. It's unclear exactly who loves him, but again, very, very much appreciative language of that which is physical and uh beautiful to the person perceiving. And then all of a sudden we have this shift in me the crestor of life, seemingly a feminine image of nature, wherever moving, backward as well as forward slewing, tenacious aside and junior bending, not a person or object missing, absorbing all to myself and for the song. That almost makes me think that this is a this is directly from Walt Whitman. Um, and, and that the name this is like the nature or the movement of muse in him as a poet. And that he is summoned back to himself in order to express uh, why he has these experiences and what he is doing when he has these experiences, absorbing all to myself and for this song, as if everything that he has ever observed is in order to be re articulated through this epic, as if he's, all his life is being poured into this. Um, and then that oxen that rattle the yoke and chain. That's, uh, that evokes epic imagery from both the Aeneid as well as the the uh, the Iliad. And, and of course, the Odyssey, the Oxen of the Sun, just to go back with um, the idea of a sunlight fire imagery with consciousness and language. But also the yoke and chain, again, like the hammer imagery. There's a freedom, but also now an enslavement to something. Um, uh, in order to get work done, you have to, partially enslave yourself, sort of like Jacob with Leah and Rachel. What Peterson often says about the period of apprenticeship or uh, where you have to essentially be a slave to develop the skills necessary to do something and then then you have true freedom. That seems to be the idea behind the liberal arts too. But also uh, we move away from sort of, um, and we haven't seen this in the last couple parts, but there is no evidence again of like this the Christian or spiritual imagery, like God, angels, spirits, or anything, but we get back to this natural, um, this natural transcendence that something in the eyes of an ox, a dumb ox, expresses something much deeper and truer than anything ever expressed in language in a book, something dead and no longer living. And then we get a description of the wood drake, which I love is the name of the male duck and the wood duck um, rising together and circling around another image of the perfection of nature. I believed in those winged purposes. That's so interesting, the winged there, because he, he must have known Homer to say that people speak winged words. Um, and so it's interesting that what, what he's emphasizing here is not, are not the deeds of man, but the sort of beauties of nature. And so the description of a bird, and again, this is a male bird, um, and consider green and violet the tufted crown intentional. Do not call the tortoise unworthy because she is not something else. And the Jay in the woods never studied the gamut, yet yeah, trails pretty well to me. And so something as if looking at nature will teach you more than any book. Um, yeah. yeah,
1: the 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 looks. Of the um, ox and then of the of the bay mare right it it's teaching you something but it's it's something inarticulate right and so that's kind of a it's mm. kind of a challenge to a poet right because that's his whole thing is that he gets to uh, attach words and um, sing right uh, so it seems like he's and it's interesting yeah. shames silliness out of me it's it's the closest thing to a lack of total confidence that maybe we've heard, right? (laughs) Like that there is something that he should be ashamed of that he's still in a way working on. Um, But the way that he says it is of course with consummate artistry, right? It's, it makes a beautiful poetic line and it creates this awesome conclusion to this um, bit of his poetic structure where it started with the team of horses and their driver and it kind of morphed through a few different images and then it ends up back with the look of that one horse right it's 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 really nicely balanced um yeah playful but you know but also serious
0: and you know it's interesting too because i suppose i i should have looked twice and a little closer because if you look very closely at that last stanza the language of faith is in there i believe in those winged purposes that could be to some I mean I believe language of belief, and then winged purpose that 's something intangible or substan- or substantial, but not a material like a principle or, or an article of faith and then play uh, uh, tufted crown intentional uh, and consider the green and violet and the tufted crown intentional that 's interesting um, because intention within nature indicates an argument for a maker or something directing that intention. Uh, uh, denotes consciousness or or rather um, implies consciousness. There we are. And, um, and then the idea of shame uh, coming through from this natural object. So again, an- another fairly religious notion but not simply notion, reality that's spoken about with religious language because of just how real and painful shame is. Um, and that's sort of interesting too because one thing I was going to say against Whitman is that perhaps in studying human nature, which is what Dante claims in the Purgatorio, you you study nature in the best possible way because he ma- he essentially directly makes a claim in the Purgatorio that it is by means of exploring a human and understand the complexities of a human that you best explore the world because humans are the world for you as a social creature.
1: Right, right. Yeah, It's it's interesting that the um the locus of attention does always sort of circle back around to the speaker himself um and and it's like connected to this beautiful play of various images which he holds up to us with with kind of incredible clarity um but ultimately it um resolves in this kind of deep study of his own perspective, his own attitude, his own consciousness. And, uh, yeah, I mean, right. Because he, without
0: he, him, he's none of this he, exists.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, he's the one who, uh, you know, you could just as well read that, right. I believe right Or where you, you emphasize it's, it's his, um, Contention or something like that. But believe in, yeah, that phrase does seem to have a kind of faith quality to it, which is very interesting.
0: And then all the sentences, I just understood the reason for the anaphora, are then connected back to that I. And 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 it's a long chain. All those all those thoughts and beliefs and experiences are the ego or the conscious mind perceiving. And or I think and uh, and it, it's I and then of course it ends with me, right? There are three me's at the end of, of Lines here, but it begins with the subject and it ends with the object And a prepositional phrase. It's the object of the preposition mm-hmm. out of
1: me well, some, Something sneaky is going on there too because in the first one two three four lines there's a verb attached to the I But it shifts, because Ah. then at the next one, it's not him doing it anymore, right? Now it's just him observing, but he sort of slides it in there. And the J, it's a new subject in the woods, never studied the gamut, yet trills pretty well to me. And I like what you said. Yeah, he shifts himself into the place of object, but also at the end of the line, which is a place of power, just like the beginning of the line. And the look of the bay mare shames. So again, new subject, verb for that subject, and he is there at the end. That's, that's pretty cool. That's kind of sneaky, though. I don't
0: know. Yeah, you know, these poets, they're pretty crafty guys. That's why we put people, you know, deceitful counselors, right? Ulysses. But, you know, that's, uh, it, it's just it's funny because it, it makes me think again of the connection that he's making to sort of the existential tradition. And let's get this right this time. The, the maxim of Protagoras that man is the measure of all things. We couldn't get that right last time. I was like, Pythagoras, and I think you said Parmenides. And then you found out that it was protagoras. And
1: uh, this is so, why the internet's handy. Yeah, got to have it.
0: it. It begins with I, it ends with me. It begins with the person as subject, it ends with the person as object, and that forms a complete whole in an Alpha and Omega, suggesting that sort of the reception and the giving of information by humans and that process is that which is divine about humans or our unique adaptation to the world and thus is that which we might call our divine ability, or that which we share with God, or God. Um, so I think there's a lot to that. Stands <laughs> up. So. I
1: I think it's it's interesting. Then, if you look at it that way, then to think about the structure, starting with the Negro holding the reins of the horses, hmm. right, in a way. He's, he's the alpha of this part 13. And so he's being paralleled again with the poet, right? The poet is also um, in control and yet also dependent on these forces which are even greater than his you know, giant strength are, are these horses and oxen, um, things which have their own intelligence, perhaps their own intention, which he can tell is there And and can't you know can can only kind of wonder what what is it that it expresses? Um, It's it's a it's a pretty cool uh, thing to think about how we haven't really heard any of these people or images say anything yet. Hmm. That I remember at least there hasn't been any dialogue um, so far. He's the speaker is the only one speaking. Speaking through speaking on behalf of um, but also listening to all of all of what he's observed Um, and that'd be something kind of interesting to watch for like where where do we hear anyone else's voice actually represented uh, or do we is it all filtered through the observation and perception of the speaker
0: yeah that's fascinating and to one extent does poetry distill down information to such an extent that you know even full conversations are a line right when he's like and I when when he mentioned uh in the last part i loiter enjoying his repartee and his shuffle and breakdown of the butcher boy it's like that's an entire conversation right there that's a you know a lot of time and a lot of information being shared and yet it's distilled down to that extent. And just sort of on a lot another bit, I'm glad you brought the attention to the the Negro holding the four horses because that just reminds me of both the mythological reference and also a philosophical one. The mythological one being Phaethon or Phaethon, the son of Apollo, who's half mortal, who tries to steer his chariot and with his horses and ends up getting attacked by Draco, sun burning forever, the Ethiopians and um, then gets struck by a lightning bolt by Zeus. If you can't handle the poetic power, well, you know, you might get hit by a lightning bolt or, you know, deprived of your wits. And, uh, but if you can master in sort of a Phaedrus-like way or Phaedrus-like way from Plato, he describes that the, the noose or the mind is supposed to, alongside the spirit, or the spirited part of the soul, which is represented as a horse, drawing along a chariot where the noose or the mind is alongside the ugly ignoble horse, which is desires, which always goes in a different way. If you can train it by pulling on the bit so hard that it bleeds uh, and so that it can keep up, then you can be in control. So it's sort of like suggesting that the, the poet or the epic poet is somebody who sort of gets themselves in order or puts their motivational systems In order, in such a way as they can express, I don't know their perspective from the seat of each of these, and um, can articulate the sum of these experiences um, as if the motivational systems are within you, like hunger, desire for um, sex, um, status, desire for status, um, uh, desire to be clean, or you know whatever all the basic motivational systems are. I think there are seven or so. We can look them up at some point. But if you can harness those and then articulate your perspective when you are um, in the thralls of one of those, perhaps you can express something of profound value.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I I mean, it it invites, you know, interpretations, perhaps even on that scientific level of something that would have been completely unknown at the time, but, with further study, Uh, you know, maybe it did have it sort of in in a germ form here uh, in the prophetic power of the poet, who knows?
0: Yes, the Sybil Trelawney power of the poet, (laughs) which Miss Sarah Miller does not
1: care for at all.
0: Well, so we're at 34 minutes right now. What do you think?
1: Uh, Let's call it a night because... The next one, we get an answer to my question. We hear someone else talk. It's the goose. Or sorry, the gander. says, Yahonk. honk. So that'll be for next time.
0: All right. Well, can't wait to see that. Um, Yeah, that'll be fun. Okay. Well, another good day. And uh, listeners, keep listening in. We are now officially one-fourth of the way through this poem. Uh, We're one season through, so we've just moved from spring to summer.
1: I suppose.
0: Yeah. So yeah, good work. Yeah. Celebrations all around.
1: All right. Till next time.
0: Till next time. Bye night scholars.